a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today and I hope you'll take the time to visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out those sponsors. Now go ahead. Take a look. Here, let me hold them up in a better light. <laughs> Actually, there, there are links on the show notes page. You can check them out for yourself. HSLammo.com. Also, pure-light.com. And our friends at uh, MonticelloCollege.org. As well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Whether you uh, need the product or the service that they're offering, I would encourage you, drop them a line. Let them know that their advertising message actually reached your ears. So I got a couple of fun things to talk about here today. Um, fun in the sense that uh, they're a little bit challenging. They might actually elicit some reaction, but I think they're also really, really timely. The first is an article from Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. And, I mean, it was in the back of my head. I kind of registered, well, so uh, let's see, last uh, July 4th, in other words, a couple days ago, we celebrated Independence Day. That was what? America's 245th Independence Day. And then it, it hit me. I remember the bicentennial. I was 10 years old. I remember, you know, the the whole shebang. It was pretty cool stuff, too. But I have to admit, that's that was more than a little shiver that went up my spine when I went, has it been has it been almost 50 years? And the answer is, yeah, in five years, it will be America's 250th birthday. And here's the question. What will America look like? Now, if you're thinking, all right, Brian's gearing up to give us some real bad news here. Um, not necessarily. I think it's kind of a mixed bag. But there is such a different dynamic at play as this uh, 250th birthday approaches. And Robert E. Wright, writing for the foundation, or I'm sorry, the American Institute for Economic Research. Sorry, there's a lot of great organizations out there uh, taking care of this. He, he talks about... Uh, First of all, what it was like in, in 1976, and apparently he was old enough, he still remembers, you know, the bicentennial. But the fascinating thing about his article is that it, it shows very clearly. In 1976, if you were to say police state, people would pretty much agree, well, here's an example of what we mean by police state. In other words, the left and the right pretty much could agree on the same terms, when they said things like police state, when they said things like long, unpopular war, they knew what they were talking about. But it's very, very different today. In fact, the really interesting thing about his article is that uh, as you look at the chart that he provides in here, the divide between progressive thinking and conservative slash um, liberal, uh, classical liberal thinking it's like, it's like two different realities. I know you've heard people make this comparison before. It's like they're in a whole different reality. But it really is. 
Let me dive into the article here, and you can you can see what I'm talking about. Robert Wright says, if you are reading this, uh, congratulations on surviving the latest Independence Day festivities, which our society somewhat arbitrarily celebrates on for July. Independence Day 2026 will mark the nation's 250th birthday. But he says Americans that day may not party like it's 1999. What will America's quarter millennial semi-quincentennial look like? And he says, I vaguely recall the nation's celebration of its 200th birthday in 1976. Lots of fireworks, tall ships and bicentennial histories, uh, some patriotic fluff and some serious stuff and biographies, many hagiographic, but others critical. If you miss the party, he actually has a link to uh, some very iconic photographs. He says, in 1976, the country still bore the emotional and economic scars of multiple political assassinations, right? JFK, RFK, MLK, race riots, urban uprisings, long and unpopular war, police state violence, domestic terrorism, a pandemic, a crime wave, high inflation, high levels of political corruption, outrageous but ultimately popular government policy overreach, and global climate change. Now, again, he was talking about 1976, but that does ring true, doesn't it? Now, he says America's in pretty much the same boat now, minus the assassinations and the tall ships. It survived then and will do it again, one might conclude. So maybe uh, we see in Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, shades of Ronald Reagan, the collapse of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, you know, the collapse of the USSR. Artificial intelligence or the Internet bringing the return of a primary of primary budget surpluses and ebullient stock market. White House interns beware. But here's where it gets interesting. He says there are major differences between then and now, though. In 1976, almost everyone linked the same events to the traumatic generalizations listed above. Today, identification varies by ideology. With progressives and conservatives, classical liberals living in seemingly different worlds, ostensibly due to rampant dis-misinfoganda. That is a legit word, by the way. Dis-misinfoganda. And man, do we get it uh, good and hard every single day. So let's use an example here. Trauma. In 1976, if you mentioned the trauma of urban riots... Most people, regardless of where they stood on the political spectrum, would think of the race riots of the 1960s. But if you look at the 2026 progressive view, the only thing they would consider urban riots is the January 6th, 2021 armed insurrection at the Capitol and the mostly peaceful protests of 2020. By the way, there's there's two lies for the price of one there. It was not an armed insurrection. And those protests were not mostly peaceful. By the same token, though, if you say urban riots, the conservative classical liberal view in 2026 is mostly going to think of the summer 2020 uh, George Floyd riots, not the mostly peaceful capital protest. I'm not trying to pitch you against anybody here, but isn't it interesting how those narratives line out? It's kind of a, kind of a fascinating uh, little trend. So if you said long and unpopular war back in 1976, most people would have looked at the Vietnam conflict and said, yep, that's your long and unpopular war. 
If you were to do that in 2026, though, progressives would point to the war on drugs, whereas conservatives and classical liberals would say the war on terrorism. If you said police state violence in 1976, most people would invoke the Kent State shootings. In 2026, progressives would say, oh, you're talking about police shootings of unarmed black men. Or conservatives would say, ah, you're talking about police force militarization. By the way, they're both describing a similar problem, just looking at it from different standpoints. They're both partly wrong and partly right. If you said domestic terrorism back in, uh, 17, in 1976, rather, people would think of the Weathermen or the Black Panthers. Today, you can probably guess the lines along which it falls. Progressives? Oh, yeah, domestic terrorism? You're talking white supremacists all day long. By the same token, people on the political right, conservatives and classical liberals would say, oh, yeah, you're talking about Antifa. When you say pandemic... In 1976, people remembered well the 1968 Hong Kong flu pandemic. But if you were to say pandemic today or in 2026, as the case may be, progressives would say, oh, COVID 2019 to 2021. Whereas conservatives would likely say, yeah, not quite sure what happened, but it was exaggerated. A crime wave in, crime wave rather, in 1976 would have brought people to mind uh, the phrase law and order. But if you say crime wave today to progressives, we're talking leniency in the name of racial equity. Don't arrest people for stealing stuff. By the way, have you seen Target is shutting down six area stores in the San Francisco Bay Area? Because police stopped prosecuting little property crimes, including shoplifting and retail theft. So rather than put their employees at risk, rather than continue to just watch merchandise literally walk out the door, they're shutting down the stores. So a crime wave, you know, that says that's we need leniency in the name of racial equity versus uh, the conservatives and classical liberals who'd say, no, nah, we're talking about out of control cities. You can see we're on totally different pages. But the list continues, and we're going to jump back to it here in just a few moments, just the other side of our break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. And sharing an article here from Robert E. Wright. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. What will America look like on her 250th birthday? And it's interesting to see how, you know, ideologically, the separation, it, it literally looks like we are living in two different realities. You talk about uh, high inflation during 1976, people would recognize, ah, yes, the great inflation. I wasn't paying attention back then. I was 10 years old, so I, did, I inflation wouldn't have computed for me. But you ask somebody today about high inflation, and the progressive is most likely to say inflation isn't coming and it doesn't matter anyway. 
Whereas the conservative or classical liberal will likely say looming hyperinflation. That's the threat. If you talk about political corruption, 1976, everybody equated that with Watergate, right? Say it today. The progressives will say, oh, we're talking about the Trump family crime syndicate. Or conservatives who would say the Biden family crime syndicate. When it comes to popular government policy overreach, 1976, people would have pointed to Nixon's new economic policy. 2026, progressives would say, no, 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 it's Trump's border controls. Versus uh, conservatives, classical liberals saying it's the COVID lockdowns. 1976, if you mentioned global climate change, everybody knew we were talking about cooling, the coming ice age. Today, progressives say, no, warming so fast we have to act by 2027 if we want to avert irreversible disaster. Whereas uh, conservatives and classical liberals say, "Eh, there's really no big trend, no clear trend. Now, Robert E. Wright says other differences can be discerned, too. In 1971, almost all Americans considered their country a superpower that would certainly exist in 1976 unless destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. In 2021, many Americans think they live in a third world country, at least in the sense of one not fully committed to a market economy that may not exist as a single nation in 2026. A decade ago, George Mason University sociologist Jack Goldstone and Yukon evolutionary biologist Peter Turchin predicted massive unrest in the United States starting in 2020 and a civil war to follow soon after. Before fleeing to the hills, though, or your favorite hidey hole, Robert E. Wright says, note that their model appears to have been based on unrealistic and hackneyed Marxist tropes and poor data. Most importantly, he says they confuse real wage stagnation with real compensation growth and overestimate wealth inequality. But he says what remains unclear is what matters more, the reality or the rhetoric. Robert Wright says, I imagine the latter, because while individuals know their present condition is basically good, they might come to believe, due to persistent dismissinfoganda, that most others are faring poorly, or they may fear that their own fortunes must soon likely reverse. It'll be a travesty if this nation falls into another civil war because its leaders again fail to distinguish truth from lies and count paternalistic unfreedom as a blessing instead of the bane of liberty. But the most important comparison isn't between the state of the nation in 1976 and 2026. It's between America's leaders today and those of the American founding. In 1776, Henry Lawrence wrote that this is the time for evincing our professions and declarations of love of liberty and the righteous cause of America. Words are not necessary to influence those who are sincere to fly the banner of their country. By signing the Declaration of Independence, 56 leaders pledged their lives and sacred honor not to a government, but to their country. They risked all for a just, if imperfect, cause. Today, America's putative leaders cower behind sovereign immunity, razor wire, and nuclear weapons. Really, Joe? To protect themselves and the government, not the country or its people. 
They care nothing about liberty and want to preserve America only to the extent necessary to extract rents from it. And Robert E. Wright says this has to change and soon or July 2026 will be no time to celebrate much of anything. Now, that's a little bit sobering, or at least I, I hope it strikes you as somewhat sobering. That someone could seriously ask and answer, hey, are we even going to be a country by 2021? I'm sorry, by 2026? I mean, it's just five years away. But then again, if I think back to what my world was like about 18 months ago, there's a lot of stuff that changed. And I mean, you know, appears to have changed more or less permanently. That seems like uh, maybe we should be paying attention here. I don't see us being able to continue on the course that we're on right now where you have not just, you know, a couple of different ideologies, but two very different versions of reality. And when, you know, people ask, well, then how do you how do you sort it out if they're both both think that the other is misled? How do you determine who's right and who's wrong, who's delusional and who isn't? I don't know. But more and more, it seems like those two different realities are um, purposefully poised at one another in a, in a way that uh, one cannot let the other alone. So this is oversimplifying a very complex matter. But to me, the person who loses the moral high ground is the first one to react with force. Now, I know there are people who are going to disagree <laughs> and people who will say, ah, I don't know, don't know if I agree, you know, or I, if I can agree with that or not, um, because they feel like they've been under attack. And I, look, I, I see it, too. I see what Antifa is doing and think that is just that is some of the ugliest stuff I've ever seen. At the same time, I think there are people who are sincere, even if they are sincerely misled, into believing that, no, 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 the only violence taking place on our city streets that, you know, bears any mention whatsoever is white supremacists out there taking over. And then they redefine everything they don't like as white supremacy. I mean, it's, it's sad. I just saw what I believe may have been a legitimate uh, post from the leadership of the Utah Black Lives Matter uh, movement showing a picture of the American flag and saying, if you fly this, you are a racist. I mean, you know, let's, hey, let's not engage in hyperbole, but uh, just thought you should know. Something that even a year ago really wouldn't have caused, you know, much of a stir. Somebody's flying a flag. What? What kind of flag? An American flag. Look how quickly that narrative has been turned on its head. Shifted. Or someone who might have thought, uh, well, you know, it's Independence Day and maybe we've got some other holidays coming up. I just feel patriotic. I want to put my American flag up. I guarantee you there are people who are seriously thinking twice. Because there are others out there. They may be a small but vocal minority who would say, if you fly this flag, you're a racist. But they're not content just to call names. They will actually, you know, come and pick it in front of your house and protest and attack you. Yeah, there's there's a collision coming. And as as uncomfortable as this phrase may make some people, um, I'm much more open to the idea of peaceful secession 
a divorce, if you will, than I am to some idea that, nope, once you're part of the union, you are always part of the union, and we've got to stick together no matter what. Seems like we had a little unpleasantness of that nature, oh, I don't know, about 160 years ago. (laughs) And it seems to me that uh, it cost everybody, not just the losing side, but everybody lost something as a result of that. So, if we can learn from mistakes, somebody wants to go their way peacefully, let them go. But somehow, I don't think that's going to happen either. I think we may have some tough choices ahead of us. What do you think? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I know that uh, for those of you who are moving to the Intermountain West, particularly the state of Utah, you probably noticed it's the hottest real estate market ever. And so when you find the home you want, you got to have your financing squared away. This is where Heather and the Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can get you squared away. She's been doing this for many, many years, decades of experience, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even if you want to refinance your existing home loan. Count on the experience and the insight of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. Of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID 715-386. You can call 435-703-4522 or visit them in St. George, 619 South Bluff, Tower 1 and 2. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right, let's talk about, since I I opened the can of worms on uh, the so-called Civil War, I'm going to go ahead and shake that can a little bit and see if we can get anything interesting out of here. Actually, it was an article from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, who apparently he was on vacation recently, and maybe he wasn't even on vacation. Maybe he lives close to Manassas National Battlefield Park. But he posted a picture on Twitter, and boy, did people go after him. He says, liberals, in other words, leftists, progressives, etc., went on a rampage against me yesterday on Twitter. The reason? I posted a photo I took while hiking at Manassas National Battlefield Park. The photo was of a plaque commemorating Stonewall Jackson's stand at the Battle of First Manassas, where Confederate troops sent northern and Washington northern forces and Washington D.C. socialites scurrying back to Washington in fear and humiliation. Near the plaque is a huge statue of Stonewall Jackson. Well, he says you would have thought that I had committed the biggest mortal sin ever. At least in the eyes of the left. Now, of course, he says, I wasn't too surprised for some time now. The left has been absolutely obsessed with getting all Civil War statues of Confederate heroes removed and destroyed. Including those in publicly owned Civil War battlefield parks where Confederate forces prevailed over northern forces. Such as at the Battle of First Manassas. Now, he says, let me make clear from the outset. I don't think government should be constructing and owning statues of anyone. And for that matter, owning and operating parks. 
By the same token, he says, I favor private owners owning whatever statues and parks they wish. But... He says, I think it's also important to expose and analyze the left's mindset when it comes to these statues, because it helps us to understand a lot of what's going on in our country today. Jacob Hornberger says, as I pointed out in the Twitter dust up yesterday, President Lincoln initiated his war on the South, not to free the slaves, but rather to prevent the South from seceding. He made that clear from the outset. Thus, as much as the left loves to wish that the war was waged to end slavery, which is obviously a much more noble and glorious goal than ending secession, the war was actually all about secession. Therefore, the critically important question is, do people have a right to secede or not? Or to put it another way, why do people have the right to force others to associate with them against their will? See, now he's getting to some good questions here. If one supposes the right of secession and supports the concept of forced association, then that's the end of the story. It follows logically that Lincoln Lincoln, rather, uh, wielded the authority to invade the South and forcibly reincorporate it into the Union. If one supports the right of secession and opposes the concept of forced association, then that, too, is the end of the story. It follows logically that Lincoln lacked the authority to invade the South and forcibly reincorporate it into the Union. Well, in the Twitter dust-up yesterday, he says the leftists continually suggested that anyone who comes to the defense of the South's right to secede automatically is defending slavery, given that the South had a slave system. But that position is illogical and fallacious. Just because one defends the right of secession doesn't mean that he defends the type of society or governmental system that the new nation is establishing. But no matter how much one explains this to leftists, they just can't get it. Their mindset is a real testament to the success that public, in other words, government schooling, has in destroying the ability of people to engage in critical and analytical thinking. So the question naturally arises, does the U.S. government possess the legal authority to invade a foreign nation to free its citizens from an oppressive regime. For example, most everyone, except some leftists, would agree that communism is an oppressive system. Does that mean the U.S. government has the legal authority to invade Cuba and Vietnam to free their citizens from communist oppression? Of course, interventionists, including many leftists, would say yes. They say that the U.S. government, as the world's greatest imperial power, has the authority to invade Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, Russia, or any other nation that is a rival, opponent, enemy, or competitor. But the fact is that the U.S. government's powers are limited to the powers enumerated in the Constitution. Most everyone would concede that the Constitution does not delegate to the federal government the power to invade foreign countries to free their citizens from oppressive regimes. Of course, we witnessed the interventionist mindset in the run-up to the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. When we libertarians opposed these two invasions, interventionists responded with, Oh, so you're a supporter and defender of the terrorists. No matter how many times we libertarians would carefully explain that opposing foreign interventionism and illegal wars of aggression does not constitute support or defense of terrorism. But he rightly points out the interventionists simply could not get it. 
to their mindsets opposing foreign interventionism and supporting terrorism were one and the same thing. And the principle is no different with respects to the Confederacy. At the moment that the South officially seceded and declared its independence, it became a separate and independent nation. That meant that the U.S. government had no authority to invade this new, independent, and sovereign nation, any more than it has the authority to invade Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, China, Russia, or any other nation that has an oppressive system. Now, leftists exclaim, but the South was fighting to maintain a slave system. Agreed. But the question still remains, does that mean the U.S. government had the authority to invade this new, independent, and sovereign nation? Does it wield the authority to invade Vietnam, Cuba, Venezuela, and North Korea today to free their citizenry from their oppressive socialist systems? Leftists also will exclaim, well, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee were fighting for slavery. Really? If that's the case, then perhaps some leftists can explain why their beloved icon, Franklin, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, said the following at an unveiling of the Statue of Lee in Dallas in 1936. All over the United States, we recognize him as a great leader of men, as a great general, but also all over the United States, I believe that we recognize him as something much more important than that. We recognize Robert E. Lee as one of our greatest American Christians and one of our greatest American gentlemen, end quote. So perhaps leftists can explain why their other icon, Lincoln, asked Lee to command northern forces in his war on the south. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, while it's difficult to assess the motives of each and every person who fought in the Civil War, the fact is that many Southerners were fighting because they were defending their country from what was an unlawful and illegitimate invasion of their new country. Lee was certainly one of those Southerners. He returned to Virginia because his state was his homeland, a homeland that was now part of another nation, one that was being aggressed against by what was now a foreign power. There is no evidence that Lee ever exclaimed, I must return to Virginia to fight to maintain the slave system. And the same goes for Stonewall Jackson, who, as the plaque at Manassas National Battlefield Park points out, fought valiantly and patriotically against a foreign power that had invaded what was now a sovereign and independent country, one that Jackson was a citizen of. Now, the South secession was not the first secession in U.S. history. The first secession took place on July 4th, 1776. We call it a revolution, but it wasn't a revolution. The British subjects in America were not trying to take control of the British government. They were simply seceding from the British Empire. But he says, I've never seen a leftist condemning that secession, even though the British colonists were clearly planning on continuing their slave system. In fact, he says, as far as I know, every leftist in America celebrated the 4th of July this past weekend. And during their celebrations, he says, I guarantee that not a single one of them exclaimed, we need to condemn the American Revolution because the British colonists seceded from Great Britain to continue maintaining their slave system. I like where he's going with this. Okay, we got to take a break. We'll be back after this brief message from our sponsors. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Sharing an excellent article from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Confederate statue dust up on Twitter. I admire him for, for posting a picture of the, the plaque honoring Stonewall Jackson in the first place. But what a crazy and volatile time to live in. I mean, I, if, I, if I posted a picture of Yosemite Sam, you know, dressed up as his Confederate colonel. You know, I got to burn my boots. They touched Yankee soil. (laughs) I mean, could could they even laugh at that anymore? I'm guessing not. And isn't it interesting that, uh, as Jacob says, most leftists probably celebrated our uh, 4th of July, our Independence Day. But they didn't realize they were actually celebrating secession. He says, I never see leftists condemning Lincoln for his support of West Virginia's secession from Virginia. I never see them advocating the forcible reunification of Virginia and West Virginia. What gives with that? If British colonists and West Virginians have the right of secession, why didn't the people of the South have the right of secession as well? That's a fair question. Now, it's not the only example of leftist hypocrisy, he says, of course. Why aren't leftists calling for the removal of the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, given that Jefferson was a slave owner? How come there's no call to rename the Washington Monument or the nation's capital, given that Washington was a slave owner? Why no support for the dismantling of statues of slave owners James Monroe and James Madison? Why only the Confederate statues? Indeed, have you ever wondered why leftists never condemn their icon, Abraham Lincoln, for believing that blacks were inferior to whites and should be returned to Africa? He says, it seems to me that there's a mindset that's shared by many white supremacists today. Leftists condemn white supremacists for that mindset. Why not Lincoln, too? And why never any call for removal from Washington, D.C. of the statue of alleged war criminal General Philip Sheridan? Should war criminals be given a pass just because they fought for Lincoln? Finally, he says, it's worth analyzing why leftists are so obsessed with Civil War statues. And he says, I think it's safe to say that the obsession arises from a feeling of deeply seated guilt. They feel horribly guilty over what Americans who lived a long time ago did to black people who lived a long time ago. But there's no rational reason for them to suffer that guilt, especially since they were granted amnesty and a pardon many years ago. See this proclamation of amnesty and pardon granted to all persons of European descent issued many years ago by now deceased black libertarian economist Walter E. Williams on behalf of all descendants of American slaves. Now, that proclamation obviously had no effect on expiating the guilt suffered by the left. And what the left fails to realize is that even if they are successful in removing every single statue, plaque, and name of every Confederate soldier from parks, public school textbooks, state houses, and the like, they will continue to suffer their irrational guilt. That's because deep down their guilt is not over the Civil War, but rather what their beloved warfare welfare state has done to blacks and most everyone else. Just look at their beloved War on Drugs, one of the most racist government programs in U.S. history. And their beloved socialist program, Social Security, which is a coercive transfer program from blacks to whites. And their beloved war on poverty, which has left blacks and most everyone else worse off economically. 
and their beloved Medicaid and Medicare, which succeeded in destroying the finest health care system in, the, in history and throwing health care into permanent crisis. And their beloved IRS and Federal Reserve, the two engines of economic impoverishment, especially for the middle class and poor. And their beloved system of immigration controls that continues to inflict death and suffering on darker skinned people. And their beloved Pentagon, CIA, and NSA, along with their forever wars, assassinations, torture, drug experiments, secret surveillance, and support of foreign dictatorships. Jacob Hornberger says that's why liberals are so obsessed with Civil War statues. It enables them to confront, or to avoid rather, confronting what they themselves have done to our country with the serfdom system that they and the right have jointly foisted upon the land. I like that, you know, I mean, he's he's getting to the root of the matter. Does it fix an actual wrong? Nope. Just diverts attention from other wrongs. Interesting. One final note. I won't have time to share the whole article with you, but I'm going to include this in the show notes and encourage you. Take a good look at James Bovard's latest article. Can mass subjugation save American democracy? Bovard says beatings will continue until morale improves, has morphed from an old joke to the latest prescription for national salvation. Compulsory national service could unite America, whooped a title of the whooped a uh, New York op-ed. Let's try that again. New York Times op-ed headline last week. Prominent media outlets, think tanks and too many professors and former generals are calling for government to commandeer a year of young Americans lives to forcibly restore their faith in the political system. Representative John Delaney made a one-year mandatory service requirement for every 18-year-old a keystone of his Democratic presidential campaign. Last year, the congressionally created National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service recommended reserving mandatory service as a last resort to force Americans to serve as politicians demand. From the Aspen Institute to the Brookings Institution, from the Washington Post to Politico, National service is being whooped up as a silver bullet for all that ails America. Now, Congress last month created a new federal holiday, Juneteenth Day, spurred in part by focus on the horrors of slavery. But compulsory service advocates are rewriting the script for American history. Apparently, slavery was evil not because of the unjust subjugation, but because plantation owners, not politicians, were the profiteers. If the federal government is the beneficiary of forced labor, any quibbles about the 13th Amendment's prohibition of involuntary servitude are moot. Compulsory national service is the deranged civics version of modern monetary theory, or MMT. MMT presumes that politicians can fabricate and spend unlimited amounts of fiat money without profoundly damaging the economy. Similarly, compulsory national service proponents presume that politicians can destroy a vast swath of freedom without harming America. Proponents tacitly assume that the time of young people is of zero value, so their scheme costs nothing. Since every 18 to 20 year old is squandering all their time playing video games and watching Pornhub, why not round them up? But where did politicians acquire the right to command young people to postpone building their own lives? Compulsory national service would provide attitude adjustment for an entire generation. 
Many proponents stress that shackling young people is the best way to encourage them to be tolerant and appreciative of people of different backgrounds. Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Doris Kearns Goodwin favors national, national service because you get people from the city to the country, country to the city. You begin to create a new generation that has shared values. Indoctrination would be a huge part of any such program, but the media wouldn't use that term because progressive values would be inculcated. The vast majority of young Americans spend 12 years in government schools, but politicians want more control over their thoughts. A recent New York Times editorial on the virtues of mandatory service quoted philosopher William James on how such a scheme could encourage obedience to command. A Time magazine article touting national service approvingly quoted a retired Air Force veteran. There isn't an 18-year-old boy who doesn't need to get his butt kicked by someone in a position of complete authority. Do Americans need to be forcibly taught to recite? Thank you, Master. Compulsory national service could provide politicians with an army to enforce their commands across the nation. After 9-11, the Bush administration created the USA Freedom Corps, a White House agency to oversee all federal service programs. The Freedom Corps quickly became assigned to recruiting informants for Operation TIPS, the terrorist information and prevention system. TIPS aimed to sign up millions of spies from, from truck drivers to letter carriers to cable television installers who would report any out-of-the-ordinary behavior to the feds. No clear guidelines were ever issued on what could be considered suspicious and worth adding to someone's federal dossier. The program was widely denounced as a federal snitch system, and Congress quickly torpedoed it. Now, there's much more to this article. I would encourage you to go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and check it out for yourself. One of the clearest lessons that James Bovard writes about from this compulsory service crusade is that much of the nation's elite media and opinion makers utterly disdain individual liberty. Since freedom for average Americans has zero value in itself, pundits and poobahs have zero concern about politicians destroying it. Rather than becoming patriotic, he says conscripts would likely be embittered to realize that politicians have wasted a swath of their lives in which they could have developed their minds and talents to make themselves self-sufficient citizens. And that, my friend, is one of the reasons why I do what I do day in and day out. It's about owning your worldview and, by extension, owning your life. This is The Brian Hyde Show.